Welcome to a Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. I'm Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Masoni and Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. This is Sarah Masoni of Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences Food Innovation Center. Sarah Marshall is off filling customer orders for the holidays, and we wish her the best and hope to hang out with her soon. We're glad that everyone joined us today, and we're honoring our social distancing by recording on Zoom call. And we call in for the show and record it so that you can all listen to us in the future. And we think it's important for us to be here with our stories of hope for our listeners. Thanks for joining us as we hear stories of female food entrepreneurs. I have a little bit of food news for us today. I wanted to tell everybody about the Specialty Food Association's Fancy Food Show in Las Vegas in February. It's from the 6th to the 8th in 2022. I'm also looking forward to the Good Food Foundation Local Food Mercantile here in Portland on April 29th of 2022. Oregon State University's Food Science and Technology Department, the College of Agricultural Sciences, and the Food Innovation Center will be at both events, and we're looking forward to connecting with you then, so stop by if you decide to attend either event. If any of our food friends out there have an announcement, please contact us through the website or submit through the Instagram at Masonian Marshall by DM Minus. And we'll help spread the news of what you're doing with your food. I am not alone today on the Zoom call. I have a guest. And it is Linda Naylor of Essential Confection. I'm so glad that you joined me today, Linda. And I want to help connect you to our listeners. Can you tell us what your social media and your website connections are? so that people can find you? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and thank you so much for the invitation, Sarah. Um, the best way to reach us is through our website, uh, www.essentialconfection.com. Uh, that's the most direct way. We're on Facebook at Essential Confection. I'm also on Facebook personally at Linda Naylor, Linda.Naylor. Uh, we are on LinkedIn, at, also at Linda Naylor. And uh, relatively new to Instagram, but Linda Linda.Naylor on Instagram as well. Oh, great. So just remember Linda Naylor and you'll find her. So what is the best way for somebody to buy your products that we're going to be chatting about? Best way is to go directly to the Essential Confection website. Okay. And they can order products and you'll ship them out to them? Indeed. Yes. Great. That's great. So I wanted to dig in a little bit here and ask you a few questions about your business. Can you tell us what the cream candy goddess means and what is the pleasurable pastry? What are you talking about when you say that? 
I found it on your website, by the way. It sort of sounded like a poem to me. <laughs> Good research. Yes, the cream candy goddess is a, an imaginary friend created many, many years ago. Uh, we had a family recipe of cream candy. And mm-hmm. those of it who those people who have never experienced it, it's um it's a pulled candy, very much like a taffy. And done correctly, it um it, it it sets overnight and it turns into this luscious melding of vanilla or lemon or maple pleasure. But it is a candy that never had a recipe. It was always mm-hmm. those family recipes. And it's very, very, very challenging to master. I had many challenges with it. And uh, I always thought that I would have it as a recipe in my pocket, that it would be something that I could develop um, expansively. And uh, I have actually moved on to other things, but the cream candy goddess remains. Okay. So it's kind of a mystery even to you, but it sounds really good. My mom used to have us make this candy in the kitchen where we'd stand there and pull it and pull it and pull it and hope that it turned into something. I wonder if it's the same secret recipe. It sounds like it. So in looking through your um, writings, you're very eloquent with your use of words. Tell me a little bit about what you love about writing, because I have a feeling you're writing all of your stuff on your website. I am writing everything on not only on my website, but on my pastry blog. And the pastry blog is called On Pleasureful Pastry. Pleasureful is a, a touchstone for me. It's a word that is just really connotes how I feel about confection products and products that I create. So uh, my passion has been writing for as long as I can remember. I've done it only for my own pleasure and uh, actually to write poes- poetry to, uh, as gifts for others. Um, but it's something I do frequently and uh, lovingly. Yeah, I can tell you're very sensitive and you have a beautiful way with words. And I was also looking at how you were talking about sustainability. And on your website, you talked about how you're using local food ingredients. I want to chat about that. But I also want you to tell people, how did you become interested in becoming a a pastry and dessert person? As far back as I can remember, I had an interest in uh, baking. Mm, I love baking. All the way back to when I was a teenager growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was back in the day, Sarah, of... We didn't have very exciting stuff back in the day. No, there really wasn't. It was box cake mixes, right? Yeah, it was. Very basic. And my interest in uh, baking continued on and really blossomed on my first trip to Italy when I was a teenager. Mm. So I had the great good fortune of having that happen. And the food and the culture just seeped in at that Mm. time. So my interest continued on into the mid-1980s, and it became serious enough that I thought I might attend the Culinary Institute of America in New York. And the the features of my life at that time just didn't align with my ability to do that or my desire to do it. So uh, I tabled it. And then we moved forward into the mid-1990s where I did actually take uh, quite a number of core courses at the Midwest Culinary Institute in Cincinnati. Oh, very nice. At that moment in time, my primary career had actually already 
really seeded itself. I spent 25 years selling um, residential and investment real estate in Cincinnati. So we fast forward 25 years, loving food and baking all the while. I bet you baked cookies in all those houses you sold, didn't you, to make it smell good so people would buy the kitchen? Cookies and caramels. Yes. To my clients. Mm -hmm. Yes. A key piece of um, the relationship that I have with my clients. So then we fast forward to 25 years of selling real estate. And I was at the point where I was ready to wind my career down. And I thought, I'm going to take a step back just to look forward a bit. And I I began thinking, I just don't want to get to the end of my life, look back and say, I wish I'd gone to culinary school. Very good. So I turned my business over to other agents. I moved to Portland by myself in 2014 and attended the Oregon Culinary Institute. And 15, I uh, walked away with a baking and pastry management degree and had the great good fortune to do internships at Paley's Place and Imperial. Oh, that's great. So you know Vitaly uh, and Kimberly. Indeed, yes. Oh, that's great. Yes. I probably ate some of your desserts. <laughs> you may have. I you probably did. Wonderful experience. Two fantastic pastry chefs there. It was, it was um, tr- just a tremendous gift. Mm-hmm. So uh, from there, I uh, that launched into uh, a, a role at a, an Italian trattoria in Lake Oswego as a pastry chef. And I was there for almost five years until January of 2020 when my role was terminated. Mm. So Always the fun stuff is the first to go, I swear. <laughs> it is. Why do they do that to it's us? part of restaurant culture, right? <laughs> Oh, but no question. They do so, that for product development and manufacturing too. They'll cut the product development people first before they cut anyone else. Ah, oh, hmm. well, I have empathy for that. That's for mm-hmm. sure. So in the same year, 2015, I uh, entered the uh, Get Your Recipe to Market program at PCC. Very good program. Wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And New Seasons actually picked up um, what was, for me, the very early stages of what would come to be my uh, flagship product, which is Essential Panettone. The Panettone. They did pick it up for the holiday uh, 2016 season. Uh, Is that just seasonal then? Do you just make it in the winter or is it from fall till January? in, In the United States, it's really a holiday dessert. It's like a dessert bread. It's a very sophisticated Mm -hmm. sourdough only uh, dessert bread. But in Mm -hmm. Italy, as I understand it, it's sold year round, particularly in Milan where it originated. But in the United States, it's really a, it's really a a holiday celebration and it's, it's a wonderful gift. So that uh, was my initial experience after uh, get your recipe to market. I worked for another five years and um, I really, my, uh, I think the product production for me became pretty latent until after my role was terminated in 2020. And then I really began working on refining the formula and just, just creating the very best product that I could create. Mm-hmm. Uh, the size is actually an interesting um, 
piece of the conversation here because in Italy, uh, things of this quality are regulated highly. I just bought one at the world market um, from Italy. I'm going to send it to my mom, Mm. but I'm sure it's not as good as yours. And (laughs) I noticed your date for ordering ended on the 13th. So, Well, we're actually in the order period. I've extended the order period until uh, this coming weekend. Oh, so it, there's hope. It, there is hope, indeed. Oh, okay. Really. So uh, I, I really began taking this product forward and I refined the recipe in a way that felt even a little more luxurious. Mm-hmm. I love that uh, soft, pull apart, ethereal kind of quality that goes with Italian panettone. And that's what I was striving for. So I created two versions, two varieties. One, is called Essential Panettone Artisan Milanese, which is very, very traditional with uh, candied orange and golden raisins. Mm. And I wanted to do something that was really uh, representative of the Pacific Northwest. So oh. I created a second version called Essential Panettone Northwest. And in addition to the orange, candied orange and golden raisins, I uh, have Oregon toasted hazelnuts and Oregon dried Bing cherries. Oh, I bet that's tasty. It's it's really lovely. Mm. It's really so, so sustainability was my second part of the question. I noticed that you're using cream from here in Oregon from Larson's Creamery out in Clackamas, which I love their butter. Yum. And then you're using guitar chocolate from down in San Francisco. My second favorite thing on your list, because of course my favorite is butter. Second is chocolate. And then you're using the Alpenrose brands for some of your other dairy products. That's great. Yeah. Preference given to local producers whenever possible. How do you go about selecting which ingredients you're going to use? Well, uh, fat the, the fat in the Euro-style butter was a consideration. That was always a really important piece of this whole process. Uh, Panettone has a, a really significant... Um, proportion of weight of, um, of butter and eggs to weight. And this is another thing that makes it um, very much of a, a high wire act, if you will, right? There's no commercial, uh, no commercial yeast in it. It's all sourdough starter. Mm-hmm. And then of course you add the, the very high concentration of butter and eggs and it becomes quite a challenge to uh, to produce and in fact to perfect. Is it true you have to hang them upside down? You have to pull it as soon as it comes out for, out of the oven. You have to turn it upside down immediately and hang it for twelve hours. Otherwise, they how collapse. do you do that? <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. It's terrifying. <laughs> it, it never gets any easier. But they're just the most luxurious, the most wonderful product, and I made the uh, the decision to create mine in a half kilo size as uh, instead of the whole kilo size mm-hmm. that is not quite uh, as big acquired right in Italy. Yeah. Exactly. So that sounds like a disaster um, waiting to happen. Do you have any funny little stories you could share with us that, you know, cause developing a new product can be really stressful. And I think having a story for somebody on that might be out there thinking about changing their lifestyle and taking on some great big family recipe, what what could you tell them about that development process? 
You know, I, I've given a lot of thought to this, and I think the, the for me, the key piece of entering into a, um, a, a late life entrepreneurship, if you will, new career uh, at a very distinctly different time of life was for me kind of the, the convergence of the way I see business, which is very relational, and uh, being able to produce a product that I felt would, would challenge me, but would also be a special product. I, I like the idea of producing a product that attaches to t- time and place. Mm. So Pacific Northwest being the, the, the geographical um, place. And I, I, you know, entering into a new business is, it is always a project in progress, right? You just put one foot in front of the other and you pivot when you need to. And that happens very frequently. Uh, and it, flexibility, I would say, is a key piece of that. And, you know, one of the things, Sarah, that I will say that I think is most important here is, is that particularly in Portland Metro or the Pacific Northwest in general, this food culture is so integrated, so giving. It is. So part and parcel of how Portland Metro has gotten its reputation as a food center, you know, very creative food center. And that has been my experience. These things don't happen by ourselves. We don't get to do these. I noticed you didn't answer my question about some little failure that you may have had. Is there anything (laughs) that you might be able to share with us? As I say, it it is in the very (laughs) early, the very early going. Yeah. I mean, come on. One time when I was working for Gardenberger, we literally put a dumpster at the end of the oven and just like tried to get that oven to work. We were just pumping those Gardenbergers right into the trash. <laughs> I have had panettone in the trash. If you're not. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs is the investment in failure. But sometimes you have to fail a lot to actually get that golden ticket. Exactly right. Right. It's all part of the creative process too. I I think it's, it's just a life lesson. Failure to me is just all part of the process. I don't want to fail any more than the next guy. Nobody does. Nobody does. Hey, do you use wheat grown here in the Northwest? Because we have a lot of really good pastry grade wheat that's grown in Eastern Oregon. We, that's absolutely true. Um, I buy all of my uh, flour products currently from Bob's Red Mill. Oh, okay. So I use their uh, artisan flour, uh, um, bread flour for the panettone. Hey, I'm going to give a shout out to the um, Wheat Marketing Center. Have you ever shared one of your panettones with them? I have not. They're right across the street from us. And they're actually a commission for the wheat growers across the U.S., and they have every kind of bakery equipment in their um, labs that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. They're just over in the Elbers Mill building on the second floor. And if you're interested in sort of connecting with them, just let me know. I love that. Yeah. So do you, um, so when you talked about sustainability and local is that the main thing for you is going being local or are there other things that you're doing with sustainability that you found to be important for your business? Well, sustainability, I think to me is it's kind of a buzzword, right? It is. It is a buzzword. And I think it's probably a, a pretty big category. 
Uh, I guess I would give the the heaviest weight to uh, fewer food miles. So the, the the closer a product can be to where we're working on it, and the higher the quality of that product, obviously, is a given. But uh, to me. It, the richness of what is offered in the Pacific Northwest is almost unequaled. And uh, everything from obviously from on the food scale, from uh, fruit to nuts to the wheat that you're describing. To me, that uh, utilizing those local and, 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 and close regional resources is really my idea of sustainability. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about two products you sent over for me to taste. (laughs) Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. All right. Welcome back, Linda. I had the opportunity to try two of your food items that you dropped off for me. One is the Essential Douglas for shortbread, which is in a beautiful tin box. I'm showing it here to Linda. And then the other were actually the chocolate almond cookies which are uh, kind of like a brownie almost with a little bit of salt on top. And boy, are they delicious. Can you tell us about these two products and how you've, where you're at with them? Are they ready for sale? Yes. Uh, So uh, at at the point where I, we had uh, essential panettone uh, ready to go to market, which we did in uh, fourth quarter, 2020, it became um, evident to me in early 2021 that I wanted to do some kind of a signature product for the 2021 holiday season. And there are two features of, of how I show up in baking. And one of them is has always been an interest in single flavor development. The other is uh, an interest in textural development. So uh, I wanted to, uh, to create a, basically a petite product that would be very affordable, but extremely high quality and unique. And so I began thinking about shortbread, mm-hmm. not bread cookie, but it's shortbread. not a really traditional, what I would call a cook, traditional cookie. It's more almost cake. I don't want to say it's cakey, but it's, it's bigger. It's thicker. Mm-hmm. It is right. scone like, but not scone like. I think it's your own unique interpretation of shortbread actually. <laughs> That's how I would put it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll accept <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, and so I had also, I, I, I'm, I'm a, a big reader. I love to read about food. I love to um, test, to experiment, to uh, really push myself out of my own boundaries. And I had gotten interest in, interested in uh, scent and aromatics as uh, they relate to flavor development. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, of course, that's a key piece, uh, right, of uh, how how we taste things. And so I, here's another piece of this, this comes back to the, the Oregon um, metro region. Oregon and Italy, of course, are on the 45th parallel. We have similar weather patterns, 
uh, beautiful volcanic soil. We have rich farmland and so forth. And I really wanted to do something that was emblematic of the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, what if I could create an essential Douglas fir shortbread? What would that be like? And so that was the challenge I, I threw out to myself. And I began the process of, um, of reading and uh, acquiring product and researching how different kinds of spices uh, complement one another mm-hmm. would bring to a really finely textured piece of shortbread. And uh, I, I, I worked on it for, for quite a while, but I've, I, I really feel like I've hit the sweet spot with it because it has a... The, the aroma of the fur and there's uh, just lemon essence in it as well really yeah. lingers on the palate. So I was thinking it would be really good with some of that rogue creamery um, blue cheese and a slice of pear. Oh, it sounds elegant. And maybe some cream sherry or something like that. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about when I was trying it. Well, the texture, of course, was important as well, and it is, uh, I, I really feel like I've hit the mark with it. It's its unique, and it's luscious, and it's affordable, and I it's just, it was a joy for me to make. So, so it has um, the fur essential oil. Are you getting that from a local purveyor of essential oils, or where do you, do you make your own, or how do you get that? No, I do not make my own. I, I get it actually from a, a professional perfumer in California. Oh, mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Because, you know, in the spring, <clears throat> you can harvest the fur tips. Have you ever done that? I have not, but I know you can. And I've made really tasty, um, simple syrup from it. So it's high in vitamin C. They're bright green and they are very, very different Um they, they're very aromatic, but they don't have as woody of a flavor because they're just in that really tender new stage. And so if, if you haven't gone out to your Douglas fir in the spring and eaten the tips, I recommend you do it because it's full of vitamin C. It's pretty cool. All right. Now, I remember you came into the Food Innovation Center and we were talking at great length about your chocolate cookie. Yes. How is the chocolate cookie going? Well, the chocolate cookie is where I believe it needs to be. So this was another personal challenge. And I really accepted the challenge to uh, to try to create the best chocolate cookie I could create. And so I really went back to culinary basics to, to research things like um, spread, cookie spread and rise and uh, how certain kinds of uh, other ingredients add to uh, a final show you I baked it I think it turned out pretty good it looks great looks like it looks like it the rising was correct yeah Yeah. I thought it was pretty awesome and actually I baked it last week and I've had it in my office wrapped in foil and it's still moist and delicious looking so I'm going to eat it here well I I've just always loved the um the complement of a 72 percent chocolate with almond I just think almond is a fabulous complement to it and I personally like the punctuation of salt so it, it what became interesting about this was that I started with um of course a you know guitar 72 percent chocolate and um 
I was using almond flour. And what ended up happening was it became accidentally gluten-free. So I uh, am, I'm very, very pleased with it. I will say that I've made the decision to wholesale it only. Oh, so coffee shops could bake it or something like that. Exactly. That's a big idea. Yes. Sometimes that's a good way to go because you don't have to create all the marketing campaign and all the things that go along with the CPG product. And so, and you can sell more all at once. So you can put them all in a big box and deliver them. And it, it actually works out well for the people that are making the products. And it would require refrigerated shipping, which is very costly. So I think wholesaling really makes sense. Yeah. Have you sold any yet? Uh, I've ha- I've actually placed it in a couple of local cafes. <laughs> oh, you know, tell yet. people where they can go try it? Not yet. No. Not yet. Okay. It's still in process. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, well, congratulations. I always love to hear that when somebody's having success with a product that they're, they're working on. Okay. So now that we've talked about the two cookies that you delivered to us, are you going to tell us about anything new that you're working on? Well, I do have an interest in uh, another Douglas fir type product, and I won't start work on it until probably early, probably maybe even second quarter 2022. We'd really like to go to the fancy food show in February. Uh, Never attended it, and uh, I would, I'd love to. I'd like to see if, if there are partners uh, at Fancy Food who might have an interest in, let's say, um, wholesaling the cookie or doing something else that might be creative. Plus, I have these these two other wonderful products that uh, I'd like just to be able to showcase to people. So the Food Innovation Center will be at the Fancy Food Show in Las Vegas. It's, I think, February 6th through the 8th, and we'll be in Incubator Village. And if you're interested in that, just drop me a line because maybe you can join us. If not in February, you could always go to New York um, in mid-June. I think it's around the 12th to the 14th. I think we were counting on going to Las Vegas in February. Sounds good. All right. So I see other things listed here like white and black truffles and Dungeness crab and salmon and more savory things. Are there any savory products that you've been working on that people might be able to enjoy? Um, I will say that I do have uh, another area of interest, which is going to be more fully developed in 2022. I have an interest because of my uh, history as a restaurant pastry chef, have an interest in selling uh, dessert type product. And I'm thinking consistently savory type dessert product to restaurants. Mm. Uh, I I have several, what I would call moderately, um, uh, texturally really wonderful, very uh, mainstream kinds of desserts that I would love to place with restaurants. But I'm, uh, I'm really more interested in 
composed type desserts using savory types of ingredients. So that's something that is in my pocket right now. And it will, uh, it will, it is going to start coming to fruition in 2022. Okay. I know everyone's thinking the same thing I am. Have you ever thought about applying for the Great British Bake Off? <laughs> the one thing I will say about the Great British Bake Off is that they are, I, I, I'm, I've always been so pleased that they're, they're so kind, you know, that it, it they doesn't are. I could totally see war. you on there. You have the character to do it. Come on, Linda. <laughs> Go Appreciate take them on. <laughs> you just have to practice. They most of the people that are on there because we watched this year's season. I don't know if you watched it yet, but they all say one thing that there were people that believed in them that really encouraged them to apply, and that's what made them do it. Mm. So, no one has mentioned that to me, Sarah. So I appreciate your comments. Oh my gosh, I totally was like, oh, I'm gonna tell Linda she should apply. <laughs> okay. What else? I was looking at your sales sheet that you put together for your new chocolate cookie. Yes. And I really love it. It's such an important thing that you need to have this. So when you go to one of the fancy food shows or for instance, this spring, um, the Good Food Mercantile is going to be in Portland on the 29th of April. So if you have your product already approved for them, you can get a table and display your um, product for all the buyers. And this sales sheet that you put together, I love the color. I love the big words on the top, in plus dulge. And it just tells exactly what it is, an artisan confection product. And then I wonder, did you put this together yourself or did you work with an artist to design this sales sheet? We actually worked with an artist to do it. I supplied the bones, uh, the individual components of it, and uh, we work with a Fiverr design, uh, designer who I I couldn't have been happier with. It was such a great experience. I find it to be very creative. Now, will you have one of these sheets for all of the products that you are going to be selling? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And you'll probably choose what a different color for each sheet so that it all looks beautiful together. I'm imagining. Exactly. And I'm imagining jewel tones like the painting behind you. <laughs> well, interestingly, our brand colors have just been revised, and many of the colors that you're seeing behind me are part of our new branding. So I knew it. it, it it's all be, it'll all be very cohesive. Very nice. And so, on the creative part of this, you know, you're a creative writer. You love beautiful things. Are there any tips and tricks that you would share with a first-time startup person when it comes to this? branding and creative process? You know, I, I think probably the best recommendation I could make would be really getting in touch with um, a product or um, some kind of avenue that you feel you're really aligned with. It, it, I don't think it's, you know, often we hear, you know, oh, do what you love and, and that sort of thing. And I, that's. That reminds me of a funny story. Actually, these people came in my office one time and it was a husband and wife and they're like, we're going to, we want to start. This is so funny. We want to start a ketchup company. 
And I was like, okay. And then they go, and then we want to have mustard. And I was like, okay. And then I, and then they're like, and we want to have relish. And I was like, okay, so do you guys barbecue a lot? Like, why are you going to have this, you know, condiment company? Do you just love condiments? Like what, you know, or did what you're going to compete with French's what makes you unique? And they just really couldn't answer the question. I don't, I, I don't think they started their condiment company because in that moment I can see them sort of light up and say, Oh, yeah, maybe we just shouldn't start another ketchup company. It needs to be something that we really connect with. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Because you're, you're going to be spending every waking hour of the day devoting yourself to it. And it's going to be, you have to love it. You really, really have to love it. Yeah. You really do have to love it. Do you have any questions for me, Linda? Oh my gosh, Sarah, your influence is so wide and so deep. I wouldn't even begin to know what to ask. Well, I know you had a question about your packaging for the cookies. The fr- they're going to be frozen, right? And you're going to go into wholesale. And so they're going to be sold by the what? couple dozen? Two dozen. Yes. Two dozen. And people might just grab three or four and bake them and put them out on the counter or in their case. Is that what? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And for sustainability, you probably don't want a lot of packaging. Right. Exactly. We don't want a lot of packaging. It needs to be simple because it is just for wholesale. So it's yeah. not. A- so a lot of the wholesale cookies that I've seen are actually just in a cardboard box with paper liners in between each sheet. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to bake 12, they could just take that whole liner and just set it right on their um, baking sheet. And maybe inside the box, you would have a plastic liner that would just have a zip tie holding it closed. And that's it. It doesn't have to be very fancy. I think the prototype we have is pretty much what you're describing. I just, we don't have any labeling for it just yet. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's going to be it, but I do want to try to emphasize sustainability in that packaging. If I can, I, yeah, it's, it's, that's it, a it tough the buzzword of the day. It, it is. Regenerate, regenerative agriculture and sustainability. <laughs> Those are the two buzzwords right now. I don't think people really think about that when they're eating a cookie, but maybe they do. Well, Maybe not, maybe not, and particularly maybe particularly for wholesale. But I think there's a movement afloat um, nationally and internationally among chefs to really start focusing on uh, reducing waste. You know, yeah. terrible, terrible problem. Yeah, it is a problem. There's so much overproduction, and one of the problems that I see is people don't know how to put an expiration date on their food. Like a lot of times they'll put too short of a date on it. And so there's a huge amount of waste where even in homes where people think, oh, this expired, I can't eat it, but it's actually fine. (laughs) And now grocery stores are trending with putting doors on all refrigerated cases. So I have a feeling that people's shelf lives are actually going to extend. Because they're not going to be sitting in 45 degrees anymore. They're actually going to be 
closer to 34, which is what, what we really want for a refrigerated product. So I wanted to tell you those cookies, the very first set of cookies you brought to us were are in a, they're still in the freezer in a clamshell. Well, some of them have been eaten, but there's a few left and they seem to be just fine. Well, good. good. So we did a shelf life study for you. <laughs> so I'm sure when you, you know when you make them probably they all get eaten and that's one of the things I always ask people did you save some like what do you think the shelf life of this product is and that's really where shelf life starts people who are manufacturing foods have to say to themselves you know this sauce that we make it really does last three or four months in the refrigerator now let's try let's prove it with some science so since you're going to be in the freezer, that's a really good barrier to spoilage. Mm -hmm, it is. I And I think invert sugar uh, plays a part, does it not? In yeah, I think it's a what would be called a cryoprotectant. So it's not losing a lot of moisture. It's not getting dehydrated as it were. Mm -hmm. it, it looks just as beautiful as when you brought them to us. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, I'll have to go look at the date on them so you can know where we're at in a while okay so i asked you is there any question for me maybe you thought of one while i was blah blah blahing so let me ask you what would be how how can i best create success at the fancy food show Ooh, fancy food show mm -hmm. um i would have a very simple presentation on my countertop. And I would actually bring a platter with me and I would, cause you get to have two people, I think in your, your station, I would have one person behind the booth and one person sort of out mingling and offering cookies. And I don't think it's necessary for people to show every single product that they have to the people that are coming there. But to just be really professional, have these nice cell sheets we were talking about on your cell sheet, always make sure you have all the information to contact you and how to purchase the product, which I see you have your email address and your phone number. And a lot of people forget to put that on their cell sheets. We recommend that maybe you have two or three or maybe four special packages for each day that you're exhibiting that you pick out certain buyers, targeted buyers, maybe that you really want to connect with and give that little package to them to take home. Okay. Um, since your product is frozen, I guess I would have back in the preparation area, I would bring a, um, either have it in my prep area or maybe rent an Airbnb so that you could bake the cookies and bring them with you each day. Mm -hmm. And generally I tell people to prepare 300 samples for each day you're there and don't overbring product with you. Because one time I had somebody bring a whole hotel room of barbecue sauce and I don't know what they were thinking. They're just so excited. <laughs> and then they had to spend money to get it back home. Oh so God. You don't need to over-prepare. And then the last thing is I would have a small notebook and a small stapler. And I would staple business cards in the notebook and then write a note to yourself 
what the person asked you about, because every day you're there, you're going to get so many great contacts. And then when you have to go back and try and figure out what you promised someone or what it was that you were planning to do for them, it's really difficult to remember. And of course, you're going back to manufacturing and production, which takes priority over these new contacts. And I would say the biggest mistake people make is they make all of these contacts and then they don't follow up. Mm -hmm. This is very good advice. So those are the things that I would do. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just wasn't clear about what kind of volume. I mean, I, I know the the notoriety of the uh, of the show and so forth. And, and I know people in, in the food industry of, are there of, you know, of all varieties and with all kinds of different interests and motivations. Uh, I just because we really have done nothing to, to substantially research it so far. I just wasn't sure about volume and, you know. I what think, I mean, if you brought um, 10 dozen cookies for each day and then you either cut them in thirds or halves, you probably would be fine. Okay. Okay, that's good. To then know. if you get a huge line of people at your booth, because <laughs> your stuff's so awesome and you dip into the next day's product, maybe you have to just have somebody at, at the ready to ship you some product overnight. Okay. If you feel that way. Also, you can ship your stuff in advance to the hotel you're staying in if you want, if it needs to be frozen. I've done that for people. Okay. That's good to know. Generally, they have a spot in their freezer. You can bribe them with some cookies. Mm. Wow. That's a great tip. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And even, you know, you could go so far as asking the chef at the hotel you're staying in if they would bake off your cookies for, if they'd bake them for you. Things are a little weird right now with COVID, but food people, you know, they're always there to help. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sure you could do it for sure. Let's go back and reiterate exactly how do people find your delicious confection products? Can you give us your um, social media and your website again? Yeah, my website is, is www.essentialconfection.com, singular, essentialconfection.com. Uh, social media is, uh, we're heavily on LinkedIn and Facebook, uh, Linda Naylor or Linda.Naylor will find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Central Infection is also on Facebook and um, LinkedIn. Okay. And do you have one last piece of advice you've been saving to the end of this show to share with everyone? <laughs> You know, I think there's really nothing more wonderful and challenging and stressful than uh, having a business that is uh, at its core super creative. I have I've always been attracted to the uh, the parts of this business that are relational. So back in the day when I sold real estate. Uh, I I felt that it was there. I always had an, an opportunity to to interact and to act in the in the in the best interests of my clients. I still see that as how we participate in the celebrations of our guests. You know, we're just we're a little fly on the wall for all the celebrations that our guests have, and 
We love being part of that. It gives really gives meaning to uh, to what we do. And I will say something else. I would we would really really like to uh, partner with organizations who uh, whose mission it is to reduce food insecurity. And we're a new business, but these are partnerships that we're we're very serious about. You know, people who share our values about. Uh, care for one another and reducing food insecurity. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Linda, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, And unfortunately, it's time for us to end and wrap this up. Thank you, Sarah, so much for the invitation. I have so much respect and admiration for you and all the work you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story with us today and the story of your company. We record Masonian Marshall every week, so you can tune in and find us on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. If you want to be a guest on our show, you can submit an idea to startupradio.com or contact us through Instagram. And until next time, bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers, as well as farmers, fisherfolk, and ranchers by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.